Hello, I'm Mercedes Stevenson, and you're listening to The West Walk. Special rapporteur David Johnston quit his role investigating foreign interference late last week, citing, quote, a partisan atmosphere around his appointment. The move comes after opposition leaders passed an NDP motion calling for Johnston to resign. The opposition have accused Johnston of being too close to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and raised concerns about who was advising him. The Liberals have defended Johnston's integrity and say they will work across party lines to find a new advisor on foreign interference. But opposition leaders say they want an immediate public inquiry, something Johnston had ruled against. Joining me now to talk about all of this is Intergovernmental Affairs Minister Dominic LeBlanc. You are the point man for the government on this file. Welcome to the show. Well, good morning, Mercedes. So the government is now saying we're ready to sit down with the opposition parties. We're ready to talk about who this should be. Why not just say we're going to have a public inquiry? Well, so we've said from the beginning that a public inquiry was not off the table. The Prime Minister, when he announced Mr. Johnston's appointment some months ago, said that if that was Mr. Johnston's conclusion, we would respect that conclusion. Mr. Johnston correctly identified some of the challenges around a public inquiry in this space, the nature of the intelligence information, the highly classified information that would be part of a great deal of these proceedings. But we're saying again today, Mr. Johnson has decided to leave to a large extent because of the toxic climate that was created around his appointment. So the opposition leaders can't simply say, OK, call a public inquiry. What we're saying to them is, OK, if, if that is your advice to the government, suggest names of who might lead that inquiry or that public process. Tell us about the terms of reference. How would you deal with the legal responsibility of protecting this information? Mr. Polyev knows this very well. He's pretended to ignore that. But we think the time for the partisan buffoonery is over. And if they have constructive suggestions around individuals, terms of reference, timelines, how to engage with diaspora communities, all of those things we think would benefit um, from a collaborative process. And we're prepared to do that very quickly with them. So I just want to clarify something, because you initially said, the government said you would respect Mr. Johnston's findings. He found there should not be a public inquiry. But now it sounds to me like you aren't necessarily keeping that decision of his. He made that decision and reported it before he resigned, but his resignation has made you change your mind about whether or not you will implement what he recommended. Well, I think what's also contributed to a reevaluation of all these issues, Mercedes, is the toxic and vicious way they, the opposition parties attack somebody who served Canada honorably for decades. Mr. Harper thought this person should serve as governor general. He could advise them on something as sensitive as an inquiry into the Airbus scandal. And suddenly the Conservatives decided that he was a partisan actor. So it's a pattern for the Conservatives. They've attacked the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, Mr. Harper. Polyev attacked the Chief Electoral Officer. So this, this is not new. They attack these institutions. That's fine. What we've said is a serious issue like protecting our democracy from foreign interference should benefit from a serious conversation. And simply demanding a public inquiry, it's easy if you're in opposition, particularly if you're the Bloc Québécois, you're never going to be the government. You don't have to worry about that. Mr. Polyev has been part of a government that refused to have a public inquiry in similar circumstances. So what we're saying is if they have constructive, thoughtful suggestions, bring them forward. I'm going to be consulting. The prime minister's asked me to consult with experts, retired jurists, opposition leaders very quickly, matter of a few days. If people have suggestions around individuals, a process, how to deal with the classified information, then let's have those conversations. One of the challenges, Mercedes, will be to find an eminent Canadian who would step into this circumstance now when they see what happened to Mr. Johnston. There's no doubt that we'd be able to attract the kind of person necessary to lead this effort 
if we could get a consensus with opposition parties in Parliament as to who that person would be. That's the ideal situation. So that's what I'm hoping we can, we can achieve very quickly. So that consultation would be for a special rapporteur or for someone to lead an inquiry? Uh, somebody to lead a public process. We've public always, inquiry or public but, process? Those again, but, but, and, and that's, a, that's a good question. So let's see if the opposition parties come forward with serious suggestions around how an inquiry could be set up. But why is Who that their job? You're, you're the government. That's kind of like me saying, my viewers should write my questions and send them to me. So that if you want me to ask those tough questions, you need to give them to me. Aren't you the government? Isn't it your job to figure out how to do this? Well, they all voted together last week, Mercedes, to say that the opposition leaders should suggest somebody to lead this inquiry. That was the NDP motion they all voted for last week. So tell us who it is. Tell us what the terms of reference would be. I mean, we believe there should be a public process uh, going forward, as Mr. Johnston recommended. Uh, we're prepared to consider all options. Prime Minister said that some months ago. We'll say that again. But they've got to do more than simply demand a public inquiry. We're not going to I mean, set they up something. Don't though? They're the opposition, and you're the government. Right. It's up to you to set up the processes here, right? And you well, could have called a public inquiry from day one. But we asked Mr. Johnston to evaluate all of these circumstances, which he did in a thoughtful way. They decided to attack him on a partisan basis. We think that was disgraceful. Um, we're not going to get somebody credible to come forward. Uh, we think, unless there's a consensus on the kind of person and the terms of reference, they know this. No other allied country, in terms of these intelligence uh, sources, has public inquiries and brings out all of the top secret security information. Well, well I've talked that. to lots of national security experts on this show who say that CSIS and the government are far more tight with national security information than our allies in the United States or Australia. Here we had the Air India inquiry, we had Mahar Arar. Those both dealt with highly classified information, Afghan detainees. Uh, there, there is a precedent well, the for dealing with classified information. It was a parliamentary process. So we're prepared Which to you would have liked to see be a public inquiry. We're prepared to consider, but, but not in a way that compromises an national security of the country. So we're prepared to look at all of those uh, options. Uh, we think that we should proceed quickly. Mr. Johnston decided to leave. That was not our choice. Um, we're now faced with a circumstance where the next phase of his work uh, we think would benefit from a thoughtful conversation. And if we can arrive at a consensus with opposition parties, at least some of them, we think that would help reinforce Canadians' confidence that the government and parliament is taking this issue seriously. I know that you've been briefed by CSIS as part of your job right now because you're running some parallel investigations looking into things. Have you heard things in those briefings, uh, and I, I understand that there's classified information we can't discuss openly on the air, but I'm wondering if there's things that you learned in those briefings that surprised you that you felt were not initially passed on to the government. Has this been an, an eye-opening experience? Uh, we've said all along that there was a failure to share some intelligence information with responsible ministers and the Prime Minister. The National Security Advisors have said that. The Deputy Minister of Foreign Affairs has said that. So yeah, the Prime Minister has directed the security agencies to share this information with a small group of ministers that can provide advice to him. The Public Safety Minister has already directed them to share this information in a more uh, fulsome way when it, when it involves parliamentarians. So sure, I was surprised that that information was not shared as a routine matter. It is being shared now. Uh, we're also considering legislative options to strengthen these issues 
uh, obviously the foreign agent registry, other changes to the Security Information Act. So we think that we would benefit from legislative measures as well. My colleague, the public safety minister, is looking at that. So we're continuing to advance in a whole number of areas. The Security Committee of Parliamentarians is doing its work. We think there should be a public process going forward. Mr. Johnston will not be doing this next phase of the work. We're hoping to arrive at a consensus quickly with opposition parties um, that would frankly be at the level of the seriousness that this, this issue demands. Going forward, you may have some trust with some Canadians that, that needs to be regained. Are you confident that your government can achieve that? Of course we are. Of course we are. We are the first government to take this question of foreign interference seriously. In 2015, when we formed the government, Mercedes, there were absolutely no measures in place directly to deal with the threat, the increasing threat of foreign interference, identified publicly by the security agencies in a 2013 report when Pierre Polyev was minister responsible for democratic institutions. So we have incrementally strengthened the measures based on advice from professionals and based on reviews of what we put in place. And we're continuing to do so. And as I say, we'll be bringing forward legislative changes. But we think a public-facing process would benefit this, uh, this issue and benefit the confidence Canadians have to have in democratic institutions, but it can't be a partisan finger-pointing exercise from the same people who say they want to strengthen democratic institutions themselves by vandalizing them. That's not the best way to start off to strengthen public confidence in these institutions. How big of a threat do you think China is to Canadian democracy? Uh, we think the government has put in place a series of measures that have uh, identified the threat, have resisted uh, any uh, interference that would have compromised an election result. The information that I've seen, and Mr. Johnston confirmed this, and so did a committee of senior public servants chaired by the clerk of the Privy Council in two elections. Uh, Canadian elections have been decided in Canada by Canadians, uh, but countries are increasing, not only China, countries are increasingly trying to meddle in the internal democratic affairs, so it behooves a responsible government, and that's what we've done, to put in place measures to identify uh, these particular threats and to mitigate them, to isolate them. Um, and we believe that we've taken a series of constructive measures, but they can obviously always be strengthened, and this conversation, we hope, will be an important step in that regard. Minister LeBlanc, thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Mercedes. Have a great day. Canada is facing its worst wildfire season on record. So far this year, there have been almost 2,400 fires. More than 400 are still considered active. Last week, wildfire smoke blanketed a huge swath of Ontario, Quebec, and major U.S. cities like New York, drawing international headlines and ramping up the efforts to fight those fires. Among the crews deployed are hundreds of Canadian Armed Forces soldiers. At a time when the military is already feeling the strain for from limited resources and personnel shortages. To talk about the role of the Canadian military during disasters like this wildfire season and some of the other major challenges facing the Canadian Armed Forces, I spoke with Defence Minister Anita Anand on Friday. Minister Anand, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you? I'm fine. Thanks for having me. Let's start with the fires. Obviously, a devastating situation across Canada and so many brave military uh, troops who are up there on the front lines, quite literally battling these fires in, in smoke and very dangerous conditions. Is this something you think should be a role for the military? Well, first of all, I'd like to thank all the Canadian Armed Forces and our first responders for continually putting themselves out there in defense of our country day after day, especially at this time with regards to forest fires. 
the Canadian Armed Forces have deployed across the country. In Alberta, we have about 150 forces members on the ground now. In Quebec, about 450 forces members, and we are ready to deploy in Nova Scotia as well. We're responding immediately to every request for assistance that is coming our way, and Minister Blair and I are working hand-in-hand to make sure that we are expeditious from a federal government standpoint. Of course, the provinces have the first line of authority in this area, and when they ask for assistance, we are there. And it's it's obviously... uh an extraordinary situation and an emergency, and you know well as the minister and any of our viewers who, who know folks in the military there, is nobody keener to jump in and help uh, when people are in trouble and, and to try to protect Canadians, whether it's from a foreign threat or fires. But the reality is that the military is in a very difficult situation right now because, as you know, there is a recruiting crisis, there's a retention crisis, there, there's not enough people. Are you concerned about the effect of relying on the military for natural disasters or domestic disasters like COVID? over and over during time as the Minister of National Defence. You're exactly right that we are in a growth mode. We need to build the Canadian Armed Forces so that we are robust into the future, and that has been my priority in terms of creating an armed forces where everyone feels protected and respected so that we do have that robust institution in the long term. At the same time, we have to remember that the Canadian Armed Forces aren't the only first responders in this situation. We are seeing firefighters from across the country and indeed internationally coming to Canada to assist. Firefighters from South Africa, from the United States, from Australia. And the reality is that first responders around the world are stepping up to assist with forest fires in Canada, recognizing that climate change is an issue that affects all of us and our allied relationships remain strong. And that's why we're seeing such an international level of coordination and cooperation. Uh, Minister, I I appreciate everything you're saying there, but it doesn't really answer the question about whether you're concerned about the military being relied upon so heavily during a time when they are under great stress and and whether the federal government should be looking at other options because you can't just create more people, whether you're in a growth mode or not. So that means that there's a potential sacrifice of other operations. These are also the same individuals who are away from home all the time, training, deployments, Mm -hmm. operations. It, It takes a toll. Are you concerned about that? Of course, I am always concerned about the Canadian Armed Forces and what we need to continue to be robust and to grow. As I said, I've had long conversations with Minister Blair about the need for us to continue to ensure that there are multiple options for assisting in crises such as natural disasters. And he and I are completely on the same page uh, that we will work with the provinces as necessary. We will source different types of support for the provinces in their time of need, and the Canadian Armed Forces are just one of those many different types of support, such as in the area of firefighting. Another area that you've pledged more support for is, of course, the Indo-Pacific, and this has been something that your government has been talking about investing in heavily. You were in Singapore just a few days ago. Of course, last week, our cameras uh, captured a dramatic incident between a Canadian and U.S. ship that were sailing through the Taiwan Strait uh, and a Chinese Navy ship that cut the American ship off at, at very close range, only about one ship length away. The Chinese have characterized this as Canada and the U.S. trying to stir up trouble in their waters. Talk to me about why we've made the decision uh, to sail through the Taiwan Strait in this way um, and why we're pairing up with American and allied ships to do that. 
Mercedes, we have sailed through the Taiwan Strait with our allies for a number of years. And in this particular instance, we are doing what we've always done, which is to observe and uphold international law and international norms, which do indeed permit a sail through of the Taiwan Strait. Similarly, we will continue to monitor UN sanctions over North Korea in the air with our Royal Canadian Air Force. That's upholding international law. That's what international law allows. And we will continue to be there to maintain a free and open Indo-Pacific together with our allies. Indeed, our Indo-Pacific strategy speaks to this point. Canada will continue to be present in the Indo-Pacific to uphold the peace and the stability and the openness of that important region. Uh, when you spoke to Navy officials about this and, and to the Americans, what was their take on that incident? I know we've called it unsafe and unprofessional. Those are very military terms that are used in very specific international contexts. But a lot of lay people looked at it and said, this is dangerous. These are two very large ships at sea moving at very high rates of speed. China is an increasingly disruptive power in the Indo-Pacific. That is without a doubt the case as you indicated in terms of the recent incident in the Taiwan Strait and Canada for its part will continue to partner with our allies and other countries to ensure that we are playing our role to maintain a free and open Indo-Pacific. That's what international law demands, that's what our policy in the Indo-Pacific strategy sets out and one of the reasons I was in Singapore last week was to say to countries in that region of the world that you will see more of Canada here. We will play a role as a Pacific country ourselves in ensuring that this region is free and open, stable and secure, given the importance in the world as well as the fact that Canada is a Pacific country ourselves. So how do you balance a world where the Canadian Armed Forces are deployed across the country right now fighting fires? At the same time, they're wanted in the Pacific. Uh, the, the frigate that is there right now is actually an East Coast frigate. It had to sail all the way around to make it to the Pacific. I'm hearing story after story from folks in the Navy about lack of crewing, about ships that can't get that far out of the harbor because they keep breaking down. How can you continue to pledge these things when there's the same amount of money and resources and timelines for the military? Well, let me just start by saying that when I was involved in the discussions relating to the Indo-Pacific strategy, I made sure that we were putting forward proposals from defense that we could actually obtain and meet. So adding a third frigate was a goal that we could accomplish and indeed are accomplishing as we speak. Ensuring that we are undertaking exercises with our partners, collaborating in the area of cyber and women, peace and security. Those are also elements of our Indo-Pacific strategy and those are elements that we can meet within the constraints that we're operating under. At the same time, you're right, we need to continue to grow and that's exactly why we put another $8 billion into budget 2022 for military spending on top of the 70% increase in strong, secure, engaged, our defense policy over a nine-year period beginning in 2017. That's why we are continuing to put forward funds for NORAD modernization, almost $40 billion over 20 years. And just to be clear, that was, that was plan spending and capital spending. It's, it's not a massive injection, which you've been saying. You're waiting for a defense policy review to come out before you look at that money 
money. But I do want to change gears just quickly before we wrap up to something uh, my, my inner um, Dana Scully X-Files has to ask this question of the Minister of National Defense. We heard a lot of stories coming out of the U.S. over the past week about unidentified flying objects, the U.S. military starting to talk about them. I know Canada was invited to a briefing at the Pentagon regarding this. What do we know about these UFOs that are being talked about, where they might have come from, and have any been seen over Canada? Well, we know just over the past number of months, Mercedes, that we have seen increased activity from an aerial perspective, including over Yukon, where NORAD shot down a cylindrical object in February. And the reality is that Canada and the United States will continue to cooperate in terms of addressing this increased activity in the air. But our collaboration occurs not just in the air, but also in terms of at sea and subsurface. We are seeing increased Chinese activity in and around our continent, not just in the Indo-Pacific. And we need to be eyes wide open on China so that we can address any current and future threats. Lots of interesting questions about those UFOs, including whether they originated here on Earth, something I never thought I'd say on our political show. But here we are in 2023 with all kinds of interesting things evolving. Minister, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us today. Thank you so much. Take good care. And now for one last thing. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau made a surprise visit yesterday to Ukraine, where he announced new military support and addressed the Ukrainian parliament. Global's Europe Bureau Chief Crystal Gamansing is there for the visit. What's the latest, Crystal? Mercedes, Justin Trudeau here in Kyiv really reinforced that idea that he's been saying all along that Canada is in for the long haul. And he came here with the Deputy Prime Minister with a list of new supports, $500 million in aid money to, war to go towards Ukrainians who are ongoing in their pursuit of defending their territory from invading Russian forces, but also joining the coalition of nations that will be training Ukrainian fighter pilots. They will also be helping to maintain Leopard 2 tanks at a facility in Poland. They're also going to be providing more munitions, something that we know the Ukrainian president continues to ask for. So really, he is here lining everything up, saying that Canada continues to support Ukraine and really passionately telling all Ukrainians, from soldiers to politicians, that Canada is here and that support will not be going anywhere. Mercedes? That's our show for today. Thank you for joining us. We'll be back here next Sunday. I'm Mercedes Stevenson for The West Block.